in the air. Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 50 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I am talking with Andy Baggerly. Uh, the 50th podcast is brought to us by Matt Duffy and Ty Block. Ty Block are the <laughs> Giants who wore number 50. So how you doing, Andy? So Grant, would you mind if I started us off with a trivia question? Not at all. Please, I, I I enjoy a good trivia question. Okay, who wa- invented the cotton gin? No, who who was the <laughs> who is the current giant who wears number fifty? If you can figure out who that is, what is the reason behind it? Because there's a meaningful one. Okay, so the current giant wearing fifty. We've yes. talked uh, extensively about my blind spot to where I'm pretty sure I couldn't tell you Buster Posey's number. Like I am, I'm just <laughs> just that dumb when it comes to numbers. I have no idea why. Um, so fifty, I'm just gonna guess uh, someone who is after Ty Block. So Mauricio Dubon. Okay, it's a tough question because it's new bench coach Kai Correa. He is the guy who wears fifty. That, that would be a tough. That's the probably the toughest part. Now this is maybe the easier part of the trivia question. Why does he wear number fifty? Uh, I. I, I, oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. Does it have to do with Hawaii? It may. Is it because Hawaii is the 50th state in our union? Oh, congratulations. You win wow. both showcases. Excellent. Wow. I knew you could I actually do got it. Yeah. 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 Awesome, he told me awesome. that, a, he told me that a week or two ago and he said, you know why I'm wearing 50, right? And I'm like, uh, no, no clue, buddy. And then he told me, I said, that's pretty awesome. That's yeah. Cool. That's cool. Maybe someday like put, players from Puerto Rico can wear 51. Oh, man, I like that. I, that. That's a good story. But, yeah, no, I just – Tim Linscombe's 55. Uh, Willie Mays is 24. Like, I, I have some of the big ones down, but, man, I am just bad. And for whatever reason, I know that Brandon Belt is 9, Brandon Crawford's 35, Richard Reilly is 35. But, it, boy, you can just – there's no consistency with the numbers that I know. Okay, except and for – one more, one more trivia question then. Okay, Who sure. is twenty five? Yeah, well, dang, dang it, that was my segue. I, was, I, was <laughs> I stole going, your segue. I stole except your segue. for number twenty five is Barry Bonds, and we're gonna talk about Barry Bonds because you had a good, nice hour long conversation with Barry Bonds, which isn't something most people can say. Talk about. Barry Bonds. Yeah, you know, that was one thing I wanted to do when I got to spring training. I said, Barry's going to come at some point, and I would really be fascinated to see if I could get a little time with him, um, A, to talk about hitting in general, because, I mean, he's, we all know from watching him that, and he'll maybe never get credit for this given all the other stuff that uh, surrounds him, but, you know, the guy was just an intellectual genius. I mean, he was a savant at hitting, probably every bit as as uh, smart as, as a Ted Williams or, or pick anybody in baseball history. And I, you know, I just thought we don't, 
we don't get enough of Barry's voice talking about hitting. I think, like I wrote, he, he's someone who's mastered the art and science of this craft, and yet now it seems like kids and coaches are, are reading an entirely different textbook. Um, or maybe it's the same concepts, and it's just a, a more defined language, and they have better ways of measuring some of the things that he already just knew. Um, so I just wanted to get his take on some of that stuff, and, and then obviously uh, I, I was expecting, you know, maybe hoping for five minutes, and we sat out there for more than an hour, and, uh, and he, he was just very, very accommodating and, and very thoughtful, and, um, and obviously had some, some things to share that are a little bit melancholy for him personally as to where, where he might be in the game. But, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty remarkable. That is, I mean, just when you went in Slack and shared that, hey, I got Barry Bonds for an hour, I, th- I think you could hear my jaw hit the floor and, and, <laughs> and uh, Brownie's jaw hit the floor because, my goodness, that is, that is not something that you go to the ballpark and expect, that I'm just going to get an hour with one of the greatest hitting minds that baseball has ever produced. Uh, you know, going over your article – the one thing that stood out for me is that he came up with his walk-up song was George McRae's I Get Lifted. And that's one of my favorite songs. And I never knew that. I, I remember, you know, the final episode. Uh, I don't remember the George McRae, darn it. Yeah, he moved to that one. And and uh, and you know what? I have to give Tim Kawakami a lot of credit because he line edited my story and I, I totally got my 1970s funk wires crossed, and I thought it was a Rufus and Chaka Khan song and not a George McRae song. And he caught that. Uh, and of course, Rufus and Chaka Khan was Tell Me Something Good. So, um, you know, I was close, but I didn't quite have it right. So, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, I believe I, I had in, in, in college the In Yo Face, The History of Funk, Volumes 1 through 5 uh, CDs. And I've made sure that I've ripped all those onto my phone. So I, I could queue up. I could queue up some George McRae for you right now. I do. I do love that song. I get lifted. Anyways, that's not really my major takeaway. That was just it stood out to me. But so Bonds is talking about how the language of hitting today is is different, and it's it's not necessarily the same textbook, the same language he was speaking. So. Can you illuminate some of the major differences? Is it is it just the launch angle? Is it the the Ripsoto stuff or you know the the biometric stuff? I should say, uh, what exactly is so different from when Bonds was playing to him? What what did he point out? Well, I think you know you, you went by feel and you didn't have necessarily the measurement of where your center of gravity was. You just kind of knew what you had to do to get in a hitting position. Everyone's different. Um, the way that one person hits is not going to work for another person. Um, the criticism that he had was, you know, the notion of I'm never going to hit ground balls or I'm going to have this uppercut swing and, and finish high. Uh, he's like, you know what, that's that's technically not a good swing because, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's a good swing for today's game. And I don't blame these guys if they can make $200 million hitting 220 with, um, you know, 200 strikeouts. Uh, but you know they're they have a 400 on base percentage and they're hitting 45 homers. If that's what you get paid for and that's what you're encouraged to do, he doesn't blame them for 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 seeking that out and wanting to create that bat path and that swing. But what he was saying is, you know, what takes work and what he did. Um, was driving the ball with a swing that was much more level um, because that takes you, that means you have to engage, you know, more of your core, more of your um, uh, different muscular components. And it's a harder thing to do than, than to, you know, do what sort of the body naturally wants to do and, and, and swing uppercut. But it allows you to make more contact. And then, you know, if you have 
the strike zone awareness and discipline to go with that, that's on an elite level, um, you know, then you can put yourself in position to impact the baseball and not strike out so much. So um, a lot of it's a similar concept, but uh, it was just really interesting to hear him talk about, you know, he wasn't denigrating the way that, that the game has gone. Uh, it's just the way the game has gone. And it was kind of funny to hear him say, you know, hey, look, maybe I would have done this this way too if this is what you get rewarded for in today's, in today's game. Now, let me have you translate something for me, because uh, there's a quote here from Donnie Ecker, uh, uh, Giants assistant hitting coach, and it, it's, Barry's ground interface was elite. Uh, what does that mean? Um, so they have these things called force plates, and they're essentially like, you know, big scales, and the guys can stand on them um, when they're hitting in the cage. And it measures, you know, their weight shift. It measures where their center of gravity is or center of mass. And it helps them understand, hey, am I getting too far out in front? What Ecker is saying there is your swing starts from the ground up. And you're never going to be in a good position to hit with your arms and your upper body if you're not doing the right things to sort of channel your energy uh, in the most efficient way possible uh, with your feet and your legs. And so how you interface with the ground is just a fancy way of saying you know, how you're using your lower half to set up everything else that you have to do to put yourself in a good hitting position. Got it. Got it. Now, as someone, I am, I'm currently coaching my six-year-old daughter and I'm also a assistant coach, uh, uh, or, or helping out with my 11-year-old daughter. So I'm very interested in this idea of teaching a swing because right now I'm trying to teach a swing to, to girls at two different stages. And the thing that I realize is there are 750,000 different parts to a, a swinging a freaking bat. Like, it is amazing how, you know, it's it's where your feet are, it's the hips, it's the transfer of power. And some people, I mean, I think it's just, it can't be something that comes naturally to everyone, to even 98% of the players. It's something you got to learn and, and figure out, you know, how all the different parts fit together. But from all accounts, Bond's just always had it you know he just knew he it's like uh goodwill hunting he could just play is, is that an accurate assessment or is he working just as hard to learn his swing as everyone else had to oh no and i think that's what uh some of the other giants coaches were talking about is i mean obviously you know he won some sort of genetic lottery he's bobby bonds's kid right sure. um in terms of being just a very athletically gifted and he also had the opportunity that not everyone would have, because like, you know, Willie Mays is his godfather. He could spend time around the big league hitting cage. Um, he obviously got access to premier coaching, and, and people who are some of the best ever to play this game you know, could, could give him you know, advice. So, um, you know, a lot, in a lot of ways, the, the path was groomed for him. But, um, you know, that, that did, only took him so far. What, what made him elite um, you know, aside from all the other obvious things, uh, but what made him a multiple, multiple MVP before there was any whiff of, of, of steroid suspicion was, um, you know, the fact that he did work tirelessly uh, to perfect his practice. And then through practice, he uh, perfected his technique. I mean, no one can ever say Barry Bonds wasn't, was never driven. I mean, this guy sure. is driven is absolutely one of the core words I would use to define him. There are a lot of other ones, but um, yeah, I think that that's something that can really cross um, generations and cross languages of, of, of hitting and cross philosophies is having good practice habits and having that work ethic.
So Bonds was sort of in the the news last year. Uh, well, news for Giants nerds when when Austin Slater described his sort of change in approach coming from Bonds, basically as saying, uh, you know, only swing at the pitches you know you can do damage on and just go for it. And that was sort of the advice that that Austin Slater credited for uh, helping turn his career around. Now. Is he talking to a lot of the, the young players in camp? Is that what he's doing there? Is he trying to have these Austin Slater epiphanies with, with different young players? Is, is that his role in camp? Well, uh, you know, part of the reason he's here is because, uh, you know, he, he does deal with a lot of the sponsors and, and the suite holders and all those other things, and it's Investors Weekend, so it dovetails with that. But in terms of what he's able to do in uniform, I mean, I think the expectations are modest. You know, he's only dropping in for, for a week and spending some of that time with the minor leaguers. So he's not going to come in there and say, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. He's, he's been sitting back and, and, and sort of watching and listening uh, and, and letting these new hitting coaches go about their business. And, um, you know, he's been throwing BP. He was taking some swings uh, uh, last week just for fun. Uh, but mostly I think he's just there to, uh, in a concrete way, you know, not try to change anyone's swing, but, but definitely hone in on, on how he had that mental approach, um, you know, how he was able to, you know, tunnel, as Gabe Kapler was saying, uh, and, and really look for pitches only in his tunnel. And even the borderline strikes have the, the discipline to take them and not be afraid of falling behind in the count if the pitcher's executing on you, uh, not be afraid of hitting with two strikes. But, um, you know, just make good decisions when it comes to when to swing, when not to swing. You know, that was actually what I wanted to talk about next was, was the tunneling, because that was, I think, uh, my favorite passage and, and, and quotes from the, from the story was, was about that tunneling. And, and the, good, the idea of a good leave and where a pitch might be a strike, but if you're not hitting high outside strikes, then don't try and swing at it, even if it's a strike. And you know, just I'm an old dog with not very many new tricks. It it just that blows my mind. Just having watching having watched baseball for decades without thinking like that. It's just of course you want to swing at every strike. It's in the zone. You better be able to do damage on every single pitch that's in the strike zone. But that's not what hitting's about these days. Sometimes it is the good leave. Yeah, and I, you know I think that has been a part of the game in the past to some degree. You would especially hear it when you'd get a guy who's got a good two seamer on the mound. And uh, you would you would hear hitting coaches or hitters talk about you know I with the runner on first base I I may not swing at that sinker at the knees because that's what he wants me to do he wants me to put that in play and go six four three so I I have heard that before some of those concepts aren't necessarily new but maybe they were a little more situationally applied and and now it's just like all bets are off this is you know I'm not going to swing at your borderline strikes you're going to have to execute three of them to get me out. Got it now. No, it's it's fascinating stuff, and I'm I'm glad that you're able to talk to him for more than five minutes. Now, what was your plan if you got, just got to talk to him for five minutes? Uh, I think I would just try to get as much out of him about you know how he's interfacing with the current hitting coaches and um, and what he hoped he could contribute while he was here. Um, and, and you know, I was just yeah, that's a, probably as as modestly as I went into it. And I thought that maybe what what was going to carry the story, to be honest, was I was going to show video of Bonds hitting to all three hitting coaches and just say, break this down, tell me what you see. And uh, <laughs> and, and that was going to probably be a story that would be, you know, hopefully interesting to read. And, and then obviously Barry was was um, very, very accommodating with his time and, and didn't mind talking. And, you know, I, I will add this uh, addendum on. Uh, we are um, uh, making a small fix in the story because I did talk to Barry again um, 
the day after the story ran, uh, and and he was very not only civil but 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 really pleasant. Uh, but he did want me to point out that there was one bit of context uh, that uh, that he thought was was not quite accurate, and that was later on when I'm paraphrasing and I say that he feels like MLB. And, uh, and, and the baseball industry has given him a death sentence. He wasn't referring to MLB. He, he said that he wanted to make that clear, um, that he was really just referring more to, you know, not being in the Hall of Fame and, and some of the other ways that maybe he feels a little bit excluded from baseball at large. But, mm. you know, definitely make sure we get that clarification in there. Uh, but even then, you know, he's, he's talking to me about something in the story he disagreed with. And it was it was pleasant. It was incredibly civil. It wasn't it wasn't a, you know glowering in in the least bit. I mean, he's he said you know he's he's trying. He's trying to put himself out there a little bit more. And um, and a cynic would say, oh, you know, he's just trying to change a few more votes because he's got he knows he's got two shots left at the Hall of Fame. And maybe that's it. Maybe maybe it is self serving, and maybe it's not. But uh, you know, either way, uh, I can only tell you what my interactions were with him, and and he was beyond accommodating all right well let's shift gears let's go from uh barry bonds to uh yandel gustave (laughs) the classic segue um but so the giants made some roster cuts uh they sent down let's see looks like or they optioned and reassigned about what 15 players Uh, 17 i believe yeah 17 okay any surprises mixed in with these roster moves um, for me, I guess if I had to pick one on each side, um, I'm a little surprised by Gustave because we thought he'd be a pretty key part of the bullpen, maybe a late inning guy. Um, but Gabe Kapler was saying, you know, he just really needs to work more on a secondary pitch that he can not only throw for strikes, but miss bats with. And they mm-hmm. feel that, that, you know, okay, he's not going to be a candidate to, to break with the team given where he is. So, um, you know, they made that call pretty quick. Um, the other one, I thought we'd see a little more Kian Wong. Uh, mm. He's on the 40-man roster. They don't have a lot of infielders who are left-handed. Um, Yolmer Sanchez is a switch hitter, obviously. But then, you know what? A day later, I saw Drew Robinson take some at-bats. He's you know a non-roster guy. He does not have options where Wong does. And, mm. uh, and he's taking some pretty good uh, plate appearances. So uh, he's a guy who could be a factor as a left-handed hitting uh, infield sub. Uh, but those are probably the two. And of course, Chris Shaw, what, 10 or 12 at bats, but, and they let him know pretty clearly, Hey, if you're going to stick in the major leagues, it's because you're a solidly above average offensive player and he's clearly not there yet. So those were probably the headliners for me. Yeah, I was, there weren't any like major, my mind is blown cuts or options. Uh, the one that, that stuck out a little bit to me was Sam Selman. Um, I, I know with, with Tony Watson sort of, you know they're hoping that he'll be ready for opening day. They they haven't indicated anything otherwise, uh, but I still thought maybe they would want another lefty um, just in case to hang around. Uh, the other one would be, oh, and I've never said this out loud. Okay, so it, tell me if I'm butchering the name, but Tyler Sir, Sir? Tyler Sear, yes, yeah, Sear. Okay, yeah. Tyler Sear. So that was the other one too because I, I thought he he showed you know a little bit, and he's he's been around for for quite a while. He's in his mid twenties, I think he's twenty six or so, and I thought this was going to be the year that he was really sort of going to force the conversation just a little bit. Yeah, I think you know it, it's going to be tough. You look at the lefties, and they've got Jerry Blevins, who you know I, I don't know what his contract situation is. I'll have to check or, or if he'd be amenable to starting at AAA, but. You know, he's, he's a guy, uh, from an inventory standpoint, it'd be harder to keep. 
you know, they, they've got a number of other guys, uh, you know, who are left-handed too that they can look at. And they've got a lot of the Tyson Rosses and, and Trevor Cahills. And there are a lot of people in camp that I think they may have to add to the 40-man roster who could be uh, in this bullpen. So, uh, and, oh, and don't forget Wandy Peralta. He's out of options. So um, he's a guy they'd have to keep. Uh, there's the Rule 5 kid, uh, um, uh, Danny Jimenez. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, they can only keep so many relief pitchers. And if they know that a Sam Selman is, is not going to be a candidate, um, then better to send him to minor league camp where he can get on more of a progression and, and get in his work every other day and and, uh, and let him focus on starting the season uh, at Sacramento. That's a good point. Now, let me ask you a question. Which one, which one is more important? Is it more harmful to someone's chances that they're not on the 40-man roster and will need to be added, which means that someone will need to be removed, or is it more harmful to your chances to make the team that you have options? I mean, it's like, because to me, I'm thinking the Giants just can't add like five players to their 40-man roster, uh, you know, five relievers or whatever to their 40-man without getting rid of some guys they would really prefer to keep. Uh, on the other hand, I know they're so big on options and they really just, they are aware of this guy has options, we will use you later, but this guy doesn't and you're going to stick. Yeah, you know, I, I thought about that quite a bit, and I actually had a conversation with a, a player about that very thing. It's a player who has an option yet and was kind of bemoaning it, and I, I kind of made the point to him. I said, you know what, if you were out of options, um, then it would probably make you more of a DFA candidate, to be honest, which may mm-hmm. turn out to be good for you and may turn out to be bad for you. Um, I mean, ultimately, the, the simple answer is be good enough so that they can't send you out or 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 can't platoon you, or can't uh, you know yo-yo you up and down. I mean, Ronald Acuna has options. He's not going to get optioned this year, right? <laughs> um, but it, it's it's a it's a it's a good question. And honestly, I think in the next CBA, uh, we talk about how players are really going to want to try to go from you know six years of of service time to five to become free agents. I think they'd be better served trying to uh, get one of those option years taken out, make it two instead of three. Or, um, or or find a way to get to arbitration after two years instead of you know two plus or or whatever, um, because you you got guys who could get yo-yoed up and down and 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 they're in the league five years before they get you know three years of service time to even get to arbitration where they could make you know uh, over a million bucks. So, um, but you know when it comes to inventory, I think teams are always going to try to protect that inventory as long as they can. Um, if you look at 40-man vacancies, one easy one they can do, I, I hate to say this, but you know, Aramis Garcia is out for the year. No one's going to no claim him on waivers. That's an easy DFA. There's no reason to pay him the major league minimum of 575000 or whatever it is to rehab all year. Sorry, Aramis. That, I really don't mean that personally, but you know, that's going to be the, a business move. I think that they're, it's going to be obvious for them to make. Um, and then they could 60-day, probably Tyler Beatty. We'll know what's going on with him uh, shortly. Sure. Uh, and and you know, there's some other people. Chris Shaw, that's going to be a tough one. Would a team mm-hmm. claim Chris Shaw? Um, I look at a lot of the pitchers on the 40-man, and I think a lot of those guys, if they were to DFA, would get claimed. And uh, and a lot of times the decision they make is based on, okay, not as who's the 40th most valuable player to us, but who is in that 30 to 40 range who we know we can uh, outright back and, and keep uh, within the organization. So we all, we all are so conditioned, right, to who's going to be on the 40-man or the opening day roster. But we know after seeing 64 players last year that sure. uh, you know that's that's not of primary importance. Sure. No, I I think that Wandy Peralta not having any options left is going to be huge. But also, you know, he's faced twenty batters this spring and struck out ten of them, so he's doing something yeah, right. Sure. 
what give, predict a bullpen for me then? I mean, just just go through and give me the Andy Baggerly. Here's my educated guess about the eight pitchers in the Giants bullpen. Oh, I, I think we can collaborate on this. How about I name one and then you name one, and we'll see where we are when we get to eight. All right, sounds good. Okay, I will start. Um, Tony Watson. Tony Watson. So he'll be. I mean, I know that he was. He's throwing. He's. Saying, you know, it's just, it's not going to be too long, but there's no concerns about him being ready for opening day? I don't think so. I don't, okay. n- not, not right now, but if, if, you know, if, if we, let, we'll revisit this next week, but uh, for now, I would say no. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll, I'll pick in this draft. Uh, Trevor Gott, out of options, pitching well. Think he might be the closer. I don't know. He's looking good in spring. Oh, that was like, yeah, that, that was the other, that was the, the easy pickings off the board. Um, <laughs> Okay, let's see. We could get into a gray area here because I think Trevor Cahill is on this team right now. But yeah. what if he's the fifth starter? Right. I don't know if we we. Th- so this this draft has gotten complicated already. Already. Um, I uh, okay. Can I take Trevor Cahill? I'll take Trevor Cahill. Okay. Uh, I think Cahill. You know, I just did the fifth starter rankings, and that's going to be my the, the next topic if we get around to the you know who's ahead in the fifth starter. But I think that's a pretty good one. I think Cahill has a little bit more upside in the bullpen than say a Suarez. I think you can uh, use Cahill for multiple innings. I, he he would be a pretty solid guy in the bullpen. I do think. But I'll go with Tyler Rogers. I think that's a fairly oh, good one. easy one uh, where good he pick. does does have options, but he's been talked up in the spring. He, you know, since we've seen him, he hasn't struggled. We haven't seen a bad Tyler Rogers yet, whether it's the end of last season or the or in spring this year. So, I I think he's on the team even with all those options. Okay, as 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 Kipe would say, good pick, good pick. Um, <laughs> I will take Harleen, and I I really hate to tell you that it's pronounced Harleen and not not Jarlin, but uh, Harleen Garcia. He's throwing great. He's out of options. Uh, I think they really like him. Um, I'm picking him for the bullpen. All right. Well, uh, now my because now I'm stuck with Wandy Peralta, and now I'm looking at all these left-handers, and I realize that my Sam Selman question was really dumb. Because um, <laughs> I, I think Wandy Peralta makes it. He's missing enough bats in the spring. He's out of options, and that's going to be you know if they have three lefties, they're going to have three lefties, and and I don't see any of them being traditional loogies. So you know obviously you can't have a loogie this 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 year. You can't have the lefty one out guy. But I think all these lefties that we're talking about are three out guys. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, uh, Jerry Blevins is, is probably um, uh, down the pecking order in terms of if you're looking at lefties, who can get righties out. But I think mm-hmm. they're going to give him give him a, a good look. He's not my pick, though. He's not my next pick. Uh, my next pick will be, ooh, this is a tough one. Hmm. Luis Madero's throwing well. Uh, oh, I'll, I'll go with Andrew Triggs. There we go. Mm, um, Andrew okay. Triggs. Because you can never have too many former A's, first of all. Um, <laughs> but uh, they really like him. They like his size. He's throwing well. He's a guy who can throw multiple innings. Um, and, and and you know what? I think it's really too bad that Matt Carasidi is is off to have yes. Tommy John surgery because he was having a really nice spring. And his forkball is a pitch that they loved analytically. Uh, uh, and, and interestingly enough, and, and Mark Carrig is working on a story about this, so I don't want to steal his thunder, but the cool thing about Kerasidi's forkball is he wants it to act like a knuckler, and he's trying to get that spin rate as low as he can, while uh-huh. everyone else is trying to accelerate their spin rate. 
Um, he's like, hey, 500 RPMs, I'm digging that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I think that he would have made the team, but I think now that he's um, sort of shuffled off to, to uh, Neil L. Attroche land, um, I'll, I'll go with Andrew Triggs. For more content of this episode, visit theathletic.com slash bags and brisby. That's theathletic.com slash bags and brisby.